Welcome to the Coach Fury Podcast. This is where fitness and geekdom collide. It's time to live long, be strong, and die mighty. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 65 of the Coach Fury Podcast. Now, if you noticed several months ago, we had a new intro come in, and that wonderful voice that is so much better than mine is this week's guest, the amazing Laura Palmer. Laura is an old friend of my wife, Kim's, in addition to doing the VO for this show, she's the front person and mastermind behind her band, the Screaming Rebel Angels, and they just got back from their fourth, I believe, European tour, and they have a new album, Heel Grinder, coming out. She's starting a record label. She does so much stuff on her own, and similar to me, left a, a stable, high-paying job to focus on, really, pursuing her passion, her interest with music, but also had a plan in place. So I think that's really beneficial, whether or not you're in fitness, whatever your business is, um, to hear from her. It was a great chat. So I look forward to hearing from her. Also, at the very end of this podcast, before the end tag out, which is also her voice, you're going to get to hear her new single, Oh My Soul, which also has the music video, which is going to be on the show notes. So lots going on in Laura's world, and I'm really excited for you to hear from her. Before we get to that, just a few things going on in the world of Fury. Man, the holidays are coming up. I'm flying out to Taiwan in a week to go teach my last courses of the year. I'm doing an HKC and an RKC in Taipei. Then I come back, and we've got an original strength coming up. We've got an RKC that's almost sold out in March and an HKC in March. And then I'm still planning stuff April through September. And then September, almost through the rest of the year, looking pretty jammed already. Uh, I don't want to go through specific dates and stuff. It feels a little weird to do that during the holidays. But let's just say, go to CoachFury.com. And you can see all the courses, all the episodes of this show. And if you uh, want to even come and take a class at Fury Industries, the Speakeasy of Strength, all the information's there. The one thing I will ask is, you know, the mic you're listening to is an upgrade paid for by the patrons of this show. Thanks, gentlemen. Um, Laura coming on has helped upgrade this show. And I've had to, I had to buy a new laptop because, quite frankly, my, my old MacBook is starting to crap the bed because uh, it's fairly old and there's a lot going on with the editing of this show and just recording and production value. So what I'm saying is uh, if you are feeling giving this holiday season and want to support this podcast, especially if you've listened to maybe three to five or more episodes, you become you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash coachfurypodcast. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash coachfurypodcast and you can make a one-time, a per-episode or monthly donation towards the show that money goes right back into the show again this literally the microphone you're hearing me speak on was paid for by the guys um so it's appreciated still gonna do it don't feel that much pressure uh but anyway enough about me let's listen to laura and i Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Are we and, recording? Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I keep it really chill because I don't want to be like, hey. And five, four, three, two. <laughs> I always think of Wayne's World when in the beginning they're like in three, two, one, and then you do the hand gesture that the show's starting. <laughs> oh. And then everybody gets a little moment of weirdness like. Oh, That's awesome. Uh, I've never watched Wayne's World. Really? Yeah. I don't think I've ever watched all of Star Wars either. I would understand Star Wars, but there, <laughs> there's so few true rocker movies that would, 
I would imagine you would watch. Not you personally, but I remember as a kid growing up looking for heavy metal movies. It was basically we had like Wayne's World and then we had things where it was like satanic records played bas- backwards. Oh, yeah. What was that one? They were like they dug a hole in the backyard. The Gate. Yes. Which really holds up and is actually a super tragic movie. That's so good. I think it's on net. It's either on Netflix or Amazon Prime or it was like a year ago and I never got I, around I, to watching it. When I was little, I used to get E.T. and The Gate mixed up. Oof, that's a hard, <laughs> that's a hard for figuring it out midway. <laughs> My head would just like, it would just all end into one. <laughs> Elliot leaves a trail of Reese's Pieces to Satan, basically. <laughs> yeah, isn't that how it goes anyway? Something like that. But okay. then there's something weird, like, isn't there like a tragedy where the dog gets it or something <gasps> in that movie? I remember there being like a, I know, I remember there being like a brutal sort of uh, pet scene in the gate and not in E.T., there's a brutal alien scene, I guess, in E.T. I, I, I have a selective memory of all of them, apparently. It's okay. <laughs> and then the other metal movies, just to, to clear this off, there was like, a, a, I think it was Jennifer Connelly. I think it was called Creepers or something like that. But it had like, it was about bugs and I, it had an Iron Maiden in the soundtrack. So I watched <laughs> it purely for that. And then there was like a, a, a movie, another where like a metal band creates some sort of satanic song and it had like cameos from gene simmons and and ozzy and oh. it was a total piece of shit but of course it was like these are my people oh and river's edge river's edge would be like yeah that really <laughs> was the metal genre up that until was... stranger things now oh yeah oh and airheads you see oh. that one yeah, I just remember, Brendan. what was that guy, Encino Man with the... Brendan Fraser. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Encino Man. The kids and I went to WinterCon comic book convention and met Sean Astin, who is also the straight man in Encino Man. Mm-hmm. And Samwise Gamgee. But look, we didn't come here to talk about Samwise Gamgee <laughs> or The Shire. Um, listeners, look, there's two voices on this podcast for about the last 20 to 30 episodes. One of them's good and one of them's me. And uh, <laughs> Laura's... <laughs> Uh, now an old friend that uh, is a very close friend uh, of my wife, Kim's, and she's super talented as a musician and as a designer and an artist and now an editor. And like, just, I really <laughs> wanted to talk to you because one of the, one of the connections were that, that I think fits in the fitness world, even though this isn't a fitness podcast, is so many of us are put in this role of entrepreneurship, of do it yourself. And a lot of us get lost. And of Kim's friends and now my friends, you're one of those people that really crushes it. Um, And also, I know when I first became a coach and left my previous career, a lot of people reached out to me based on my blog about like, and I think you even reached out to me about that blog, about how you read it. Yeah. And a lot of people were kind of inspired by that blog. But I don't think like... It was have your exit plan. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Some of my favorite blogs are written by, are are titled after emo songs that I didn't realize left such an impression on me. (laughs) So that one's named after an under oath song called (laughs) Exit. And I'm like, I'm not even the biggest under oath fan. I have one album and I think I listened to three songs. But anyway, a lot of people think about it. A lot of people, I don't know if they plan well to make it happen. But then I also Mm -hmm. think the downside is some people just never plan and it never happens, right? At all. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about to kick this off um, is, I guess, roughly around a year ago, maybe a little more, you left your full-time job, which was a pretty killer job, and decided to go on your own. If you could give the listeners a little background on what you were doing and sort of like what led you to make the big leap. 
Well, um, about a year and a couple months ago, I left my day job. I was, um, I'd been a clothing designer basically since I got out of high school. Uh, I just kind of fell into it. And it's one of those things that fits in my personality that you just kind of figure it out. Um, and so uh, my last job was I had launched and designed the Betsy Johnson line for kids. And Betsy Johnson was always my favorite designer. She just has such a big personality and she's one of the few designers where it's actually about the designer's personality as well. And it just kind of creates this whole lifestyle. And that was one of my goals to just be able to, you know, work with someone like Betsy Johnson. Um, but then in reality, um, you know, <laughs> what happens is that, um, you know, she, re- she retired a few years ago. Um, her company was sold um, and that company went bankrupt. After that company went bankrupt, it was sold to Steve Madden. And Steve Madden's a shoe company and a bag company. So what they do is they license out um, the brand, the name, to other companies. So the company that I was working for, I wound up um, pitching the concept and the line plan and um, everything to the people at Steve Madden. Um, and we wound up getting the Betsy Johnson license. And it was the first time in the history of Betsy Johnson that it was able to be a sustained and successful children's, uh, children's line that lasted more than one season. Wow. So I think I did it for about like five or six seasons before I resigned. Um, but I was miserable there. It was, um, I was, <laughs> and, and part of my head was like, you know, for this, this career that I'm in that I've put my entire adult life into, I'm pretty much at the pinnacle of, you know, a creative director for Betsy Johnson, having the control over that. And it doesn't make me happy. In fact, at the end of the day, it makes me really frustrated. It makes me, you know, question my own um, creative values and judgments because, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it, it's, it wasn't fulfilling. Um, but what I did find fulfilling was my music career. And, you know, it had gone um, up and down. I've always played music since I was a little kid. Um, and I just, um, you know, I started this band in 2011. And before the band, um, I, you know, I still played music, but I was incredibly shy and had like the worst stage fright. So it was just impossible for me to perform. Oh, wow. Now, I find that surprising because you're like a legitimate bona fide front woman. Like, <laughs> Not always. <laughs> I had to work to that. It was all this is a lot of work, you know, and all of it is planning. And, um, you know, but I kept at that, that job for years because I was like, all right, here's I need to have an exit plan. Like, what do I what do I need to do to make myself happy? Like this job that I thought was going to make me happy isn't making me happy. What's those little small points in life that are giving me happiness and fulfillment? And that that was music. Um, And I I knew that. But then I developed a plan and the plan was get healthy, get out of debt, save money, lower your expenses and just kind of get everything budgeted and then have um, after you have all of your like zero debt, have enough money to live off of for however amount of time that you think you need to have to start your other creative thing and not have the pressure of being like, I'm hungry or where am I going to sleep, <laughs> you know, and then double that. <laughs> Let me ask you this going back. Cause it, it's funny hearing you talk about this more. Now our stories are way more similar than different, except I wasn't working for Betsy Johnson and folks like you should know if you're not a, if you're not involved in fashion at all, not that I am, but especially being from New York and living in the city, Betsy Johnson is, is an icon 
but especially during like the 90s when she kind of came up at least in my opinion you would see her around at shows and in the neighborhood yeah. and in the you know in the village and the lower east side when it was still the village in lower east side you know so that transition period so it, it was like for somebody to coming up in any sort of it's weird to say alt now i just realized how the word alt has become so fucking you're right alt teen in the 90s but i was totally alt, you know <laughs> but now it's like now it's like proud boy or antifa when you think of alt so i'm going to take it back we're going to take it back but she, right. she was like you know like a pinnacle so uh, i think part of the thing is you know you got to work for somebody that was a true icon and mm -hmm. then you hit this level i think we all strive for when we started a career you hit a high creative director position i mean it doesn't get much higher than that and then uh, it's similar to me when i ended up becoming an executive producer i wasn't an owner or anything but it was like the salary was great i had a lot of responsibility and i think you did a better job of probably planning and getting out in a timely fashion i ground myself out a pretty good while trying to mm -hmm. modify the current position so i went from being staff executive producer to going freelance to trying to shirk becoming an executive producer ahead of production again just to try to like almost shed responsibilities so i can just yeah. enjoy what i thought it was i enjoyed about the job and still carried up all that sort of depression and yeah that's a it's killer it's weird when you hit the ceiling in a way where you're like, okay, I'm here. You're like, oh man, this wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> yeah. What, what kind of, so, so people can relate to this. What kind of like feelings were you going through? Like, uh, you know, for example, for me, I hated getting out of bed. The gym helped a lot. Like that's around yeah. the time, you know, I, I started finding training, but I just, I would dread having to go to work. Yeah. You just dread like waking up, you're like, oh God. And then the commute, the commute is so horrible. And then slogging into work and then checking your email and just having all these responsibilities. And then the owners just being on you and expecting more, even though you're doing the job of like six people. It's like, it's the feeling of never being fulfilled and never being enough. Because I think a lot of the problem of people that are good at their job is that they get burnt out because they are good and they are competent the, um, the people above them, especially if they're not creative, just add more and more burden to them. So it's almost like the people who are not so competent at their job get rewarded because they don't get as much of a workload. Um, they don't get burnt out. And then the people that are really, you know, that a company should strive to kind of keep together are the ones that are just like, this is terrible. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you just it's get a, burnt out. You, you hit a level of success and people you just keep throwing more stuff at you. And just one more and more. And, and it, it is that thing too, I would imagine. I mean, I've seen it through Kim. Kim's in a similar, uh, or is still in a similar field to what Laura did in, in terms of designing. And I know mm -hmm. that's how you guys met, right? Um, no, we met before, but I got, um, she was doing web design and that was right. when the dot-com bubble. And I was like, hey, why don't you come over and work with fashion with me? Yeah, so Kim just left a, a, a job that she was at for a hell of a long time mm -hmm. uh, for similar reasons. And that's sort of what was grinding me out in visual effects. I was able to do a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think I could mask the stress in public. Uh, and it definitely was having an impact on my home life. Oh, um, yeah. This is prior to me meeting Kim. And I think people, I think it, you know, for me, it weighs down to how much is your mental health worth as a paycheck? Because that does come. To and that's, that's such a terrible thing to have to like, you know, trade off like your health for money. Like there's a different way. There's got to be a different way. Yeah. I think you know? it's, it's, 
there's also like the personality. I forget who I was talking with just the other day where if you leave, like some people can have like a job they don't like. I was trying to talk to a friend. Um, I won't say more than that. So the person doesn't get a, uh, oh, they're talking about me. Those but, gross mouth noises are my dog that's <laughs> sitting right there. But. Nah, it's, it's, it's all Laura. Uh, like, What's that gross? It, it was this idea. So in trainers, we, we often have to have multiple streams of income. Like I know you do some freelance work as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I think people think when you, when you quit a big gig or a career that like, that's it. Like it's just like a million percent in, but you still have to make ends meet in certain ways, but you have to make the thing the thing. So your music has to be yes. the main thing. For me, my training had to become the main thing. And, you know, up until recently, actually, it was the only thing. I'm doing some visual effects works now with some friends just because I missed it. But it, it, I knew that, like, I could fall back and occasionally I would reach out to people just because I would get scared. Like, I have bills to pay. I have child support. Yeah. And training land for me has been so when the money is coming in, it doesn't match the amount of work. Uh, it, you know, yeah. and I, I'd have no home life at all, you know, seeing Kim or the kids. And then the flip side of that, I can have this great casual lifestyle and making zero money. But I think people think it's like they're afraid to make the jump because they just think like, you know, I'm going to quit my six figure job to take on acting. So I'm going to quit to go to acting school as opposed to going to acting school while you still have the job and you deal with it while yeah. you start to like create the base underneath it. I was just talking to a buddy who's an editor who's thinking about the same thing about becoming a, a trainer. And that's what I say. I think people think it's like this all or nothing, follow your passion. And yeah. in one way it is, but they don't think you're taking steps like you do. It's, it's really, it's about balance. It's about working it out. And I had, basically, it was like a three-year plan. And I wound up leaving. And I think I resigned in, a, in September. And I, it took, I gave them, it was like a seven-week notice so I could find someone and train them. But I had wanted to just stay until the end of the year. But I had gone on tour and I, I toured Europe and it was like 22 shows and it was great, you know, just such good shows and doing our thing and playing like festivals to like thousands of people and signing autographs and playing music and just like traveling the world. And then I get back and it's just the same old, oh, oh what was it? I think, that, <laughs> I don't know if I should talk about this. I'm going to totally talk about this though. Let so, it go. Ready? <laughs> so there was this one, oh, I, it's such a problem with getting things approved. Just like, you know, you design and the way that you design as a designer is it's a full concept and a full thing that you pull together. There's a reason for everything and it's a piece of a puzzle. So I would ultimately have to get some of these things approved. And very often there would be a question for one of the the bottoms that I would have that would be a black bottom. And they'd be like, I'm sorry, what does this black match back to? And I'd be like, it's black, it matches back to everything. It was just like the same conversation that I would have every single season. I'd be like, it's black. Can you just sell a black pant? And they refused to sell a black pant. It's like, what, what is going on? But I had uh, come back and it was already, I was going through all that of why, trying to explain why black matches everything. Are you wearing black pants right now? I'm not. I am. <laughs> uh, when I train at home, I tend not to wear black because of the dog hair. Dogs. Okay. That's understandable. But um, there was also this um, uh, um, like uh, advertising image that we had had to do. And it came back and there was, you know, they're giving me such a hard time, such a hassle about all of the stuff that I had done. And I see this image come back and it's of a five-year-old girl that they had photoshopped. They had photoshopped makeup on her. They had photoshopped <laughs> her to be thinner. They'd given her a waist and hips. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I was like, 
no. I just freaked out. And then after that, I, I think someone, I was stopping one of my deadlines because another person was like, this five-year-old, no, I think it was like a four-year-old blogger really needed an outfit. And I had to stop what I was doing and look in the showroom to make sure I could get like an, a blogger's outfit for like a four-year-old. And I'm like, this is so stupid. <laughs> That is so where social media has gone wrong. I'm like, this is so awful. I just kind of, I, I just went numb. I was so angry. I was so numb. I just went in and I just had this blank look and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and I just looked at him. I was like, I literally, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, time is our most valuable asset. And it's the only thing that you can't buy more of. And I need to spend my time doing something that fills me up instead of something like this. It's so and, true. And he's like, what do you, well, what are you saying? I'm like, I think I'm quitting right now. And he's like, okay. I'm like, yep. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm quitting right now. <laughs> and that's how it happened. And then yeah. I, still, I left on good terms with the company, um, you know, but because I stayed there like seven weeks to kind of help them. But it was just, it was, they knew too. I mean, I've been was touring around like Europe and stuff and I do all these other things. And then just to come in and just like really... <laughs> No, I know. I, I even have it a weird one where like, now that I train from home, like business is slower because I'm growing it. Like I'm a truly mm -hmm. independent business at this point. But like, you know, I just did two weeks in Asia teaching a bunch of courses and I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing. And then I come back and I'm like, where are my <laughs> clients? I have, I need more people. Like, how can I travel the world and do this? And then I'm like, can four more people in Gowanus come and lift weights in my living room with me or something, <laughs> you know? I know. It's so crazy. Those approval processes too, when you're in a creative position it, mm -hmm. or in defense of a creative position, because as a producer, I, you know, I came from a film background as a creative, but ended up in production. And I remember, you know, you talk about, you know, I've heard Kim go through these battles over, you know, articles of just like, where's the little logo? And I remember we had a Budweiser Super Bowl commercial at one of the first, the first visual effects company I worked at, Quiet Man. And we had creatives from Chicago, an art, a creative director, nitpicking us to change the size and color of legal titles and we're like trying to ship these spots now folks like uh the word legal means something you can't alter the size <laughs> you know and color of a legal title there's a there's a, a set universal united states standard for that stuff but it's that kind of stuff where you're That's the your, like what does a black pant match yeah you're the workhorse creative we're going to put all of the shit on you but this is where i'm going to now prove my point i'm going to be the one that makes you work so it has my stamp i'm going to question <laughs> your black pants and it comes down in training land too when 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 coaches you know i, I can't tell you how many times i hear a coach that works at either a, a, a very good boutique or at a big box gym and they're like my fitness manager wants me to do this or this and we all know that like you don't really need to do that or it's possibly detrimental mm -hmm. it comes in these clashes as opposed to just letting the person do their job and the success should be is like does the client keep coming back as long as they're safe you know if somebody's like yeah. reckless that's a whole other thing versus letting them do their job um in terms of i wanted to get into actually this is a, a cool one that I, I i look up to you in this aspect one of the things I loved about being a trainer and i've talked about this in earlier episodes is i felt like finally i had a DIY for life. I feel like that's such an overplayed thing now, but like a, a, a sort of punk rock profession where all I really need is some space in somebody's body. I don't need gear and I have gear so mm -hmm. I can be independent on it without, you know, and, and run my business that way. And then for trainers, I think we see a lot of that. We do in-home sessions, we travel around, we book our own shit, we work at gyms, we try to write blog posts, we try to shoot videos. 
you though have like a very such a strong worth ethic in terms worth ethic in terms of the amount of material you put out and creative material material and content and film in in my side of the world we use those phrases a lot but I, it's more art you know um where does that come from and how do you organize all that stuff for you like it is do you find fun in the process of yeah. booking your own shows and all that stuff because how do you put together a tour um well right now i'm in the process of releasing a new record and so I wrote out the whole timeline of what do you need to do? What are the actions that you need to do to release a record? And what is basically, when does it need to get done by? So I have basically a calendar that I follow and I try to adhere to. Um, and then I just, um, I feel like I kind of, I found, this is, this is when I, I feel like you know you're doing something right is when you wake up in the morning and that's the first thing that you think about and you're like, oh, I can't wait to go work on this. And then you start working on it. And then you lose the whole day because you're making something that you really love and that you believe in. And that's, that's what I do. I wake up um, at like 5.30 in the morning and it's like, oh, it's such a great idea. And then I just get up, I walk over to my computer or where, wherever it is and I just start working on it. Instead of being like, oh, I should really stay in bed for another couple hours. It's like, no, if you, if you have that inspiration, inspiration is kind of one of the hardest things to get. And when you have it, just, you just run with it. And then I get really thankful that I can be so inspired and that I can have such a clear vision of what I want to see. And right now, I'm at a point where I'm able to execute the stuff that I see in my head or hear in my head out in the real world. Like if I have an idea for a video, I can just, in my head, just see the whole thing and then figure out how to make it done from there. And then the same thing with a song or a record or a piece of artwork or even like a tour, it all kind of like, once you have the end vision, all the other pieces kind of, you figure out or they fall into place. And if I don't know how to do something, I'll figure it out. Like um, for, like I just started uh, video editing. Well, I mean, I've been teaching myself video editing for a few years now, um, but it was at the point where I had clear visions of what I wanted to see for videos or just even simple things to do for my own promotion. And, um, and what I wanted to see, I would never be able to afford to pay somebody to do it. So I learned how to do it myself. And then that way, you know, I can, I can pay people who are better at things that, than I am. And then the things that I'm good at, I can do. And it gives me more time to be able to like give the stuff to hire somebody to do something I'm not good at. So I can spend that time working on my good stuff. Yeah. I saw that post you made about how, you, how you've been studying and working on your editing and then you cut your latest music video. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's awesome. And I think that's one of the things on our side, one of, one of my biggest regrets, I'll be honest. So when I went to film school, I was one of the last years using actual 60 millimeter film. Oh. So we weren't digital at all on that. You know, um, people were mini DV was like a kind of a new thing at the time, which seems so cutting edge and it's now dated as fuck as well. And when I got into visual effects, like I just always had friends that I could rely on. And then I, I left it and Kim busts my chops on it. Cause I'd be like, Hey, can you design this, like lay out a t-shirt or a logo for me? I'm like, I don't know how to use Photoshop, but I'm also, and I think a lot of trainers, we're stuck on like app land where there's nothing stopping us from taking like an online tutorial to learn how to use Photoshop or illustrator, which as That's I'm how writing, I learned everything. Yeah. So I actually <laughs> like talking to you needing to step up my game and get over that. That said, so, 
I'm buying a new laptop so I can finally edit. My computer won't handle editing right so now. So you live in New York. You have a library card, right? Yeah. Your public library card? I think so. Or I can get one. You can get one. The best thing is if you go through their website um, with your public library card, you can access all the lynda.com uh, tutorials and courses for free. And that is amazing. So I've learned um, like video editing, um, like Premiere Pro. I've learned After Effects. I've learned like a whole bunch of things for like audio recording and engineering. Um, you know, I just, um, I had to, I'm in the process of, it'll fully launch tomorrow designing a new website and technology's just changed so fast. So I took a course on uh, bootstrap coding because that's something new. That's like a responsive like web design stuff. So, um, there are some parts that I got stuck on. I took, a, I probably took like two or three days of classes on it, of courses recently. And then I spent a day trying to figure it out. I was like, okay, I can't get this one little thing, but I know what it wants to do. So I hired somebody to do that really hard part and I have it back. And now I can, you know, finish the rest of the website. That's awesome. But now I know what it is. And now I know how to code all of it, like going forward. It, we live in this marvelous time uh, as much as like, there's a lot of negativity around and people are, are worried about, you know, um, the lack of brick and mortar businesses and whatnot on the flip side of that, you know, I think musicians could always record, you know, on an eight track demo and, and, and be independent that way to do, do a, to a degree, but for you to be able to shoot and edit and record yeah. and have all of that level of control and on it's a much higher level of quality. I mean, it's on par level of quality, basically. Uh, we live in like an amazing time for that. Like, I don't know how, you know, I have a bunch of trainer friends that have made written books and some of them are published yeah. and some of them are just self-published. There's no That's reason the why thing. you couldn't make a comic book at this point. Why can't you? Everybody back in the day, that was a thing too, right? You know, but back in the day, that was like a bigger process, a grander process. The the, the walls to entry seemed real thick yeah, and high is. and ominous. Now it's like, we're in this. Yeah, and, just uh, do it. <laughs> this fucking po- I'll be honest, this, this podcast, <laughs> and, and I'm not just kissing your ass on this. The podcast sounds better with you on it. And I got a better mic about six months into it. I barely know what I'm doing still on it. But it was either like I can... But you're doing it. What episode is this? Like 70? This would be 63 or 64. Yeah. I mean, 66 bonuses. Yeah, I know. Over a year. (laughs) We just... Podcast listeners, we just did a high five through Zoom. But it was... For me, it was one of those things. Like, I'm either going to do this or I'm not. And it took me about like a year and a half to two years of wanting to do a podcast before my buddy... Todd Bumgarner from Strength Faction wrote a blog that was like, here's your process. And I watched the blog and literally followed along. Like I literally set up my SoundCloud account, sound, SoundCloud, SoundCloud. <laughs> a sad clown. Sad clown account. Um, and, and literally went step by step on that process and then just started trying to get better at it. But I got to admit, before production value, I worried about getting better. I tried to work on like, how am I talking to people? How am I and ums and likes. And then I realized like I started using curse words just as filler without even realizing it. So how can I have a better episode? Or what did I like about it? So you start studying the process versus getting bogged down and like, do I have the best gear? Is this the best server? And I understand like investing and having something Mm -hmm. good, but I come from that thing and it's like music. You want to get the demos out. You want to get the thing out there, allow yourself to express it. And I think that's something... That's so cool now. And that I, I look mm-hmm. up to you for on that because, uh-huh. you know, it's one thing to be able for me to have a podcast where it's two friends talking, you know, on, on a computer, 
but you're setting up tours and like traveling and Kim and I've seen, I mean, Kim's seen you a hell of a lot more than me, but I've seen you a bunch of shows. You actually slightly destroyed Coney Island for me because suddenly <laughs> we saw you at Reese beach and fell in love with Reese beach. Um, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, it's both like, it's like tragic and it's sad, but it's a nicer beach. We have to be honest. <laughs> like, it is a little nicer. <laughs> it's not just a little, let's be honest. It's fucking hell a lot nicer. And yeah, uh, I know you actually like Coney Island whitefish. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't seen any, any adult males in their tidy whiteies wading into the water at Reese beach. Hmm. The water's actually cleaner. There's less oh, yeah. trash. Uh, the food is highly overpriced, but decent. But yeah, I, you pay like $8 for a coconut or something. And like, literally, here's a coconut. $8, it's so, please. It's so pretentious. I'll be nine if you want me to open it. But it's, but it's lovely. Um, but yeah, since that show, Coney Island's like my favorite place in Brooklyn. Uh, probably one of my, aside from home, favorite place on earth. And going to your show at Reese Beach kind of skewed my mind well, on now that. It's just, now you just have more favorites. I, I don't have the mental capacity to have more favorites. Hey, love is the only thing. The more you give, the more you get, man. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> let's make a T-shirt. We can do that now. We can. Remember when we were going to get a screen print machine and keep it in our apartment? You and Kim were talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> do you know why we didn't? Because I was like, it takes a long time to go there. <laughs> <laughs> is that what happened? Yeah. I'm glad it had nothing to do with me being concerned about the space. So when when we when I first started making Die Mighty shirts through Teespring, uh, Laura was making Screaming Rebel Angel. We haven't even na- listed mentioned the name of your band, Screaming oh, Rebel. Screaming Angel. Rebel Angels. Um, <laughs> which there'll be links for everything, including the new album and a music video in the show notes. Definitely check it out. Um, but we were, and Laura was going to make new t-shirts and we were like, we'll just rent a screen press and, and, <laughs> and make them here. This is before we'll we everybody's te- t-shirts. Before we were teaching classes, then we'll just become a company, which is probably fairly viable in a, in a way. It yeah, didn't but, seem reckless. But that you'd have to be like, oh, do I want my job to be, I make t-shirts? My answer is no. <laughs> I got to be honest. <laughs> so if I could do like, I don't know. See, I could parse that out. If I could do four hours of podcasts a week, 10 hours of training a week and then 10 hours of t-shirt making and management, I could probably live a happy life with that. Maybe. I, I'm good with like a, a certain level of focus structure. It becomes very meditative for me. So something like just, you know, doing the screen print thing. I've never done it personally. So I'm <laughs> pretending like any video I've ever seen on a movie of punk rockers making t-shirts or stencils. Um, I, I feel like I could be happy spending five hours a day doing that and then doing something else um it's like i like cleaning the gym floor which is really fucking weird after a class i have a very so specific- you, are we starting this t-shirt line then is this what you're telling me we just can't bring it here like how can we find a cheap space where we can create a little podcast spot a little art spot for for you and kim and then the t-shirt press we don't need i don't need sun detroit <laughs> i know we could buy a block in detroit buy a block in Detroit. <laughs> I still have that fantasy of one day making it just well enough that I could have that dream place that is both a gym, a home, a skate park, and a tattoo shop. Yeah. What the toy museum. And then, why, have you talked, you know Mer, uh, Eddie and Mariv, right? Our friends? You yeah, know? I haven't met him. I've met him at a couple of shows. I haven't so, hung out with him much. We have this thing that if you, do you remember Melrose Place, right? Yes. So, why can't we just have like this apartment complex with like a big communal pool and all this other stuff that's just like all of our rock and roll friends? Be like, hey, uh, 
I would totally be down for that. The kids turn 18 in a number of years and we're, we're count Kim and I in there was a thing where somebody posted, um, through Mark Fisher fitness, like Mark had found an article about a group of friends were buying like these bungalows by a river, like by a lake somewhere. And they just all bought them as like their hangout. So they, they created their own like little village. Let's do it. Uh, that makes sense for me. That's like a commune, right? Like communes work if you don't have a psycho cult leader. That, uh, although I volunteer to be psycho cult leader. <clears throat> you would be good in that role. Thank you. We'd have, we'd have good music. Yes. <laughs> I would like, actually, I would say in my dream space too, obviously in the skate park, uh, in true old school skate park fashion, there would have to be a stage for live music. Because that's just- Obviously. I mean, clearly. So investors out there, if you want to invest in uh, the Fury Rebel Angel or Screaming Fury Rebel Angel t-shirt line and skate park. Screaming Fury. Screaming Fury. That's not bad. Bad. Um, TM. And Destroyer. We got to get Kim on this. Yeah. Um, Hit up my Patreon. And instead of like a dollar per episode or something, just drop like a million bucks and we'll make this happen. Patreon.com slash Coach Fury (laughs) Podcast. I promise the money will go to Laura, Kim, and I to build a business. Deal? Right. Deal. That was a cult commune. <laughs> uh, centered around our business, though. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> that that sounds so horribly wrong. We've already <laughs> taken, like, a cult. We have to create a religion around it, and then somehow that's structured around um, forced labor for T-shirts. That sounds horrible. Suddenly it's falling apart. That's why people don't do this, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> that was a tangent. <laughs> Let, let's talk about music for a moment. Uh, so your music is what I would equate to is it reminds me a lot of, uh, and it's not that you're a copy in any way of this, but like when I think of you, I would think like, oh, that'd be awesome opening for social distortion. Right. So, um, but I know you also have like a pretty hardcore rockabilly, um, fan base. Although I, I wouldn't say that your music, I, I hope this isn't wrong. Isn't really pure rockabilly in any way. It's, no, it's not. way heavier, which is why I think I get that social D in my head. What drew you, into sort of the style like what were the original influences that brought you to where you're writing now because it's like the screaming rebel angels uh, you have band members but you are yeah. the screaming rebel angels it's kind of rotated it's i I'm, i feel happy that i have kind of like this whole team of people around the world that i can play with when i do live performances um but uh wait, what was the first question what, what, what were like the two what, what, what were like the biggest influences that sort of uh put you where you are musically I guess um so when I started the band I thought it was going to be more rockabilly well I tried and I'm just not very good at that (laughs) and so what just yeah I can't I can't I can't sit there and like pose and sing pretty and like an old looking mic I'm like rolling around on the floor screaming and like convulsing with like (laughs) and it's just how it happens um but um so while it's, but I still, I love that sound of like rockabilly and psychabilly because it's the most, it's like the, it's just the building blocks of, of music. It's just, you know, you got your three chords and it's, you're just good to go. It's really, it's authentic. Um, it's very emotional. You can just feel the immediacy to it and the intensity in it. Um, and then I also looked at, you know, a lot of, um, you know, I grew up like a, a punk rock kid and like hardcore shows and, you know, it had, you know, I looked up to bands like X-Ray Specs or The Slits or L7 or The Lunachicks and just like kind of all of these like really strong kind of like female, um, uh, female voices that were in there. 
And um, I think it's just, um, I think my performance style and the songs just kind of just keep evolving a bit. And uh, especially on the new record, there's some like, um, like I have one song, uh, The Devil Whispered to Me, which is just like a really heavy, just kind of like almost like a, just like a really heavy rock like riff that's just over and over again. And um, it's just talking about like kind of like, um, facing and meeting your devils, which can be kind of like your shame. And it was like really kind of like this William Blake kind of <laughs> crazy, like, oh, narrative that I kind of developed in there. But I just let myself just, just write whatever came out too. And I also, I mean, a lot of those songs I kind of like wrote like right then for the record. And um, I still, I have so many songs. And those are just the ones that for whatever reason wound up on the record. Yeah, we don't hang out nearly enough, but I get the sense from uh, when, whenever I do see you and from hearing, you know, Kim, when she checks in with you, uh, that your brain doesn't stop when it comes to that. No. Just, Which I think is like a, an indicator that this is what you should be doing. Yeah, yeah. I just wake up. It's, it's like I said, I just, I look for the things that I want to be doing that I, if I wake up and I just can get totally lost in a project, then I know that's the right thing to be doing. And I know like, that's how my brain works. Like it's very fixated and it gets like very just uh, focused. And like, why not use that? Like, just It's like a sweet little state of flow to fall into. Yeah, I, I know for myself, and, and this is another thing I wanted to bring up the juxtaposition of in the fitness world now, we're, we're it's almost put upon us. And this is obviously gonna sound a little horseshitty because I'm talking on my own podcast but to put out material all the time right mm -hmm. like here's how to swing a kettlebell here's how to get your core i did the air yeah. quotes core engage and all that stuff and it, it's a different type of thing where it becomes a job task as opposed to part of the call i think all of us most of us if not all of us in training want to help people we want to get better as trainers and you know obviously we want to be more successful because it's a hard business to be in uh, not harder than music. I think that's a doozy, <laughs> but um, in terms of actual paychecks, but you know, yeah. we're put upon this all of a sudden where our job responsibilities are making blog, writing blogs and shooting videos, have your YouTube channel. A lot of us have podcasts now. Yeah. And I think a lot of, it's like the I've social media pressure in the, the pressure to be a content creator. And you can say no to that. I'm trying. I got to be honest. I struggle with it. It was funny. It's, it's actually I had a couple of aha moments on this podcast. And yeah. I, one of the reasons I love it is Danny Cavallo, who's a writer, is a friend of mine. I think you've met Danny. He was at the wedding. You've, you've been around Danny and Annie. Uh, um, Danny on the podcast was like, you know, to hell with the idea of generating content. You should yeah. be creating things, right? It's all about actually creating. So even creating content, you're creating. But a lot of us are, are just thinking making content as opposed to making anything like making art and something meaningful and like and i have fills you up too. i have struggled with that where i'll have an idea and i'll be like this will help this is a helpful idea i'll shoot it and i feel like great about that like it helps and it'll help my brand yeah. it'll help um you know uh somebody who might be using i don't know an ultimate sandbag or a kettlebell get better at it right but then there's the other thing where i feel and i you know i sometimes like i definitely feel pressure about creating more content to keep generating my name. And I'm like, you know, I put out for the 250 people that listen to this show on the regular, I put out fuck, like six hours of content every month, but I don't consider it content. This is for me, this is that outlet. Like this actually yeah. 
I think makes me a better person. It it's, makes me- it's that spot where you're like, you're I'm excited to make this stuff. Yeah, like, I always always like, look yeah. forward to this show. And uh I'm always psyched Monday mornings when I when it when it goes out live and you know, I start to get like, you know, again, I have a I'm not gonna uh lie about the size of my audience. I love the 250 of you that really nail every episode and That's for the a rest lot. Of you that hit the big ones, like thanks. Hey, it's 230 more than I was expecting. So I was, I was literally like 20 people listening to my show, 18 to 20. Um, yeah. So thank you, listeners. Like, it means a lot to me that you're, you're here, but it's, it's also less about me. The cool thing that I didn't expect for this show was like, we're getting to have this conversation and I'm getting inspired and I'm learning stuff and it'll have an impact on me when I leave, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'm sure if it has a direct impact on me, it's going to have an impact on at least somebody's listening is going to go, go to the New York Public Library and check out a program and maybe get better at editing. You yeah, know, you go there, you just go connect to database. They're going to throw a fucking shit fit at their shitty work desk and throw their computer and just quit and join <laughs> a band or become a trainer after this. <laughs> no, have your, have your three-year plan. That is, yeah, that is counterintuitive, by you the way, folks, for what we've been talking about. Yeah. I, I, my plan, I, didn't, I wasn't as structured with my plan as you. Um, I basically started part-time one class a week in September 2010, late September, uh, after I passed my first RKC. And then in May, going into, sorry, going into January, I said, this is what I want to do. I taught classes for three months. I built up a couple extra classes. I'm like, I'm going to try to work as much as I can to make this happen. And basically had like two to three days off from January 1st to like May 14th was my last day as a, a full-time visual effects person. And it was to the point where I, you know, I had no days off. I was working mornings, evenings, Saturday, Sundays. It was becoming my own detriment. Obviously, on top of that workload, the, the things I didn't like about visual effects were worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I made the jump, you know? And we had a, a basically, my ex-wife and I had like a six-month plan that within six months, if I wasn't making X, I would have to find another thing. And I shit you like not, at a, Foo Fighters, at a Foo Fighters concert at the Garden, I booked two clients via the phone and made it just in time i hit that <laughs> number like literally the night before the food fighter show um but you know I, I think people too you know they don't see the downside of that they see the threat the financial threat but they don't see the impact you know you know clearly you know my marriage ended shortly after you know within eight months nine months of me being a trainer um you know people when i first left and and when the, the marriage ended were like oh like well you know she supported you so much and she clearly did but it wasn't just that that happened. I didn't just bail. Um, they didn't see the couch surfing. They didn't see the hours. You know, training looks fun when you're in the room. But, man, waking up at fucking 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m. on a lot of days to go commute into the city is not mm. great. The sessions are great. The getting there, not so much. And then the late-night hours and people canceling on you. And I do feel the pressure of people getting hurt a lot all the time. Yeah. Even though I know what I'm doing, I, I'm still always just like, on point and i think the same thing with music i think people will be like you know touring sounds great and i'm sure it is but there's also like you know when i travel hours and hours in an airport not great oh, uh, the the thing about touring too is it's not only it's it's not only me you know i have to make sure that my band is getting paid a living wage i have to make sure that we're fed every meal i have to make sure that we have transportation that we have instruments that we have a safe and clean place to sleep every night um, and then on top of that, you want to make sure that the venue is making money and, you know, your agents are making money. And it's so, 
it was kind of this tour. I just got back um, a week ago from our my last European tour. Oh my God, it's only been a week. <laughs> How cool is it to be able to say my last European tour though? Too? Yeah, I know. That's four. I'm already planning my fifth and sixth one. That's so, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. But I, I was just kind of like sitting back and, you know, I was just exhausted and tired and just like feeling crappy just because it's, it's really, it's demanding. Um, but I was just like kind of looking around. I was like, all right, but you know, this music and this hard work is, you know, it's you know, that's how these guys are paying their bills, you know, and that's how they're like, you know, feeding their kids and doing this. And it's like, it's pretty cool. I think there's money, but I will eventually. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? It it is, it's sort of all about the long game. And I know there's a weird thing when I've done some nightmare travels, like when you look at the numbers and like just going across the world and stuff for a couple of days and then coming back. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's not like a douche or even complaining that I can actually say that sentence as a coach. Um, but it's part of those travels are actually what I look fondly back now. Like, oh, yeah, that flight sucked. It was a nightmare. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't necessarily make it go back and make it easier. You know, that, that's like part of, this, part of the story now was that shitty flight. And for me now, when I travel, like uh, next week, I go to Taiwan. And I fly basically midnight on the 16th. I land, you know, in the future, 13 hours in the future. Um, the following day, and then I teach three days in a row and fly home, right? So there's really like no real downtime whatsoever while I'm there other than to get to the hotel, maybe a little bit of sleep and eat. Um, I'm not going to get to see anything, unfortunately, but I'm so excited to teach, right? That's what makes it worthwhile. Like I'm, that's yeah. my time on stage. Like I want to go teach and share this stuff with the people that I have and make some friends, get to know some people, even with the language barrier, because I've learned to like just the weird thing I learned on the last Asia trip with the language barrier is just to embrace as awkward as it is to not be able to like speak to somebody. It's also totally cool to just be happy in their company. Yeah. And I don't think enough of us are like aware of what that's like to just be like, I know you like me and I know, you know, I like you. We can't discuss, but we have that. Right. That's weird to express it, but I really felt this on the last trip to Asia because some of these some of these dudes in Japan have been coming for three years now. Then you know to my courses, so it's like, oh man, you're a friend, Taizo. It's so good to see you. I could say like ten sentences to you, and then we're done. But it's like I love that you're here. Keep coming. That's so great. Yeah, it's so nice when you have like um, like there's a few countries that I've just been like hitting like year after year, and you know, and you come back, and um, there's this. Um, one guy, the first, the first show that I met him, he's just there. And then, um, you know, the next show I met his wife and then the shows after that, I met its two kids. <laughs> and then it's just like, it kind of like, you see, um, when you travel and you get to do the thing that you love, you get to share that with like so many people and it becomes really special. And I know, um, for that guy, I'd also, I'd given him like a few tips online, how to play upright bass and stuff. And for the last song of the last that he brought his family again. I was like, come on up. Oh, and shit. And his, um, his wife, like, uh, videotaped it, and his kids were just like, they have the coolest dad now. And it was so funny. So it's, it's nice to be able to, like, make those memories, too. You got to be careful with getting him on stage. You might meet, like, baby number three after that night. Like, he might have gone <laughs> home. <laughs> we're gonna They'll name it Laura. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> meet my daughter, Laura. Laura, or my, my son, Rebel Angel. <laughs> yeah. Which would be a good name for a kid, too. Oh, totally. Well, I, I know, like, there was a point 
so so uh, I've known and seen Laura enough where, like she mentioned, she's got a staple of like killer musicians, but they're not always available. And there, there's a certain, you know, it, it's like it, it's within the hardcore scene as well. Like the band lineups change based on availability or collaborative yeah. projects. It's just part of the part of the process because um, everybody, you know, for the most part has other ways and other, you know, they're paying the bills and other responsibilities. Mm -hmm. But I remember there was one point, I think, I don't know if it was your first European tour or your second where Kim's like, if you could play upright bass, you could go on tour with Laura. And I was like, <laughs> I want to go tour with Laura, but I can't fucking, I could barely, I mean, I, I wouldn't even claim that I can play a regular bass. I'm so bad. And one of the things when I left uh, Mark Fisher Fitness to go full time is I'm like, I had a goal of like playing live in two years. Mm -hmm. And I practiced like about an hour a day for like three weeks, kind of fucking around, learned a, a misfit song. And that was bad. And then it fell off. <laughs> So clearly it's not in my, uh, it's just not in my drive, right? Like if it oh, was. That I, was with upright bass. I was having such a hard time finding like an upright bass player that could just play with me. So I'm like, fuck it. I'll learn how to play it. <laughs> so now yes. I play upright bass in the band instead of a guitar. It's like playing drums. I had a social studies teacher who would bust on the drummers. Like, cause we had a bunch of, uh, a bunch of my friends were in like bands in high school and he would bust on the, the drummer. I, I don't know what the phrase he was. It was something like the tools of ignorance. Cause you're the person with the most gear. Like, just by, like, inconvenience. <laughs> so the upright face makes total sense why it's not, like, a popular one because not easy to get around in New York. No, you need a vehicle or it's horrible. It's horrible. There's so many times I'm just like, why? Why am I doing this? Because <laughs> you look like a badass when you're standing on top of it or holding upside down. Uh, yeah. And there is the sound. Yeah, I mean, in, in defense, <laughs> like, it does sound very different. The upright uh, bass versus the versus an electric, like a traditional. Oh, electric. it's completely different instrument. Yeah. I yeah. was, um, uh, I guess last Thursday. I, I was actually it was Thanksgiving. We were playing this little town in um in the Netherlands called Hilversum, and we're playing. And I put the bass down. I did something, and all of a sudden the bridge goes flying. All the strings <laughs> come off. I'm like, oh no! So the bridge just totally collapsed on it. Um, so the the bass is unplayable and then somebody just comes over and puts a bass that was on the wall on me like an electric bass so I'm like okay so I plug it in <laughs> and I was like okay I can play I play upright bass and I uh, wrote these songs and um, I play guitar and then I was just like holy shit I don't know how to play electric bass very well does it translate at all I've never even thought of it well I guess it would in some ways but the way that I play like rockabilly slap bass um, so mine's like very percussive, um, and the way that I'm doing like triple drags and like these slaps and everything that you just don't do it on an electric bass and you, you just, just get the ring on the pickups, just slapping a thing against the pickups. No, it's not, it's not <laughs> that kind of thing, but I was like, Oh no, <laughs> but thankfully I was like, um, I think we're going to take a break. But then somebody that came to see us was like, I'm a bass player. Do you want me to fix it? I was like, sure. So like took two songs that I played really poorly on electric bass and then I have my upright back. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, we've actually been talking for an hour and we're going to oh. start winding this down. That went very, very fast. Yeah. Um, where can listeners check out your music and the, the new album? Is the new album out? I know the video's out, but is the new album no, out? The new album is out on January 24th. It's called Heel Grinder. It's 13 tracks of unrelenting rock and roll. Uh, we, if you're in New York, we are going to have our record release party at the Mercury Lounge on Friday, January 25th. Oh, awesome. Um, 
Yeah. But if you go to my website now, screaminrebelangels.com, there's no G in screaming, um, you'll be able to go and pre-save everything on Spotify or uh, Bandcamp or iTunes, and you can pre-order the vinyl, CDs, T-shirts, all of it. So it's screaminrebelangels.com. And I'll put the uh, info for this in the show notes, folks, so you don't have to look it up. And I'm going to throw it out there. Uh, everybody, l- let's go to the release party. If you're fans of the show and you're in New York, Brooklyn area, let's go and hang out there, have a drink, and listen to some awesome music. Uh, we were talking before the show. It- it's The other albums are on Spotify, and mm-hmm. I've seen you play, I think, four or five times now. Mm-hmm. The 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 production, the mix on this, the production value seems higher. Not that it was low on the other ones, but it, was there a specific yes. bigger sound you were going for on this one? Absolutely. This is the record. It took five years to get this record out. And during that time, it was just, I didn't have a lineup. Every time, like, we try to get, like, a, a, a new person to join the band or someone in there, it, we just spent all this time just, like, learning the new material, learning the old material. And just never had anyone to just like kind of sit there and just write the new material with or just work out new songs so I basically went to uh, the recording studio it's in Greenpoint it's called Studio G and I met with the owner and I was like hey I have this record I have all these songs that I want to make and this is kind of what they sound like I played him some scratch tracks and I'm like I don't have a band (laughs) but I want to make this happen and he's like I love this and I'll be here for you and we will make it happen. So I went with the new studio. I went with the studio. Um, so instead of doing analog, like straight to two inch tape, um, we had to do it, um, you know, digital recordings. It was still a lot of like outboard gear, but this way, you know, I sang on it. I played bass on it. I played guitar on it. I played Farfisa on it. Um, I hired a, uh, a session drummer. Um, uh, basically I demoed out all the tracks, um, made Excel sheets for like, this is what it's supposed to sound like. This is how it is. Here's the structure. And went in and um, my guitar, uh, the guitarist that I play with, Brian, um, you know, he wrote uh, three of the songs on it. I wrote seven and we have three covers. Um, And the three songs that were his were ones that we had been playing um, for a while, like been playing live already. Um, And then these other ones, I'm just like, here you go, play this. And he's like, I don't know this song. I'm like, just play it. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> like, play your lead guitar. I don't need you to do anything else. I just need you to put those little tasty Brian licks on top of it and we're good to go. So, um, and then the engineer, his name was um, Tony Mimone and he was with, um, he's, uh, he played in the Para Ubu um, and uh, with Frank Black and with um, uh, Bob Mould um, and they might be giants, I think. And he was just really kind of this, like, just warm, loving kind of fatherly figure that was also very protective of me as far as in what I saw as my vision. So it was, like, the first time I was in a studio where I was just always listened to. Not saying, like, the other one places I wasn't, but this is, like, no, I am the executive producer on this. These are my songs. This is how it's going to be done because this is how it should sound. And That's awesome. And I think I'm really proud of what came out of this. I feel like it just sounds, um, spent a a lot of time just getting the sounds right, getting the levels right, getting the, just like, what instrument am I going to play on here? There would be times where I'd fix a a song would be done. Then all of a sudden I'm like, I don't like that at all. Like uh, the song Sweet Petunia. I'm like, I think the guitar sounds, that's not what I want. It's not what I'm hearing. 
So we were about to do the final mix and Tony went out of the room and I was in there with the assistant and I was like, it's like, is, is that mic live? <laughs> He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, just record this. So I took out the guitars. I put in like an acoustic in there and then just slowly started building up on it. And then that was done and Tony wasn't back in the room. And I was like, hey, do you, do you have a Farfisa? <laughs> And he's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, let's see what that sounds like. So then just layered in like an organ on it too. And then it was just really, I don't know, it was cool to be able to have the space and the time to just kind of like, you know, work out all these things. And if it didn't sound right in the mix, you just, you know, work until it sounded right. And even um, like they're, they're a genius when it comes to like mixing everything too. But they also listen to like how I wanted it to sound. Because, you know, they're how, how, mixing is like very personal too. It's like, how much do I want to push this here? What do I, what do I want to be out front? I feel like a lot of the records um, that we did before, I, um, it's a little bit muddy. You didn't hear anything. I wanted the vocals to be out front. I wanted the vocals to just, just punch you in the face and just to grab you. And then the rest of the music to just kind of pull you in and to be really high energy. And I I think we did it. That's awesome. Cause I know uh, you don't really think about it even with, with, big, big bands, but a lot of like bands have certain albums they hate just because of the mix. And even yeah. at like a high level, it's, it's sometimes out of the hands, you know, like I know, uh, yeah. I'm forgetting which Anthrax album, but I know there was like an argument when they were doing Among the Living that like the mix that came through for some, you know, producers come in, like they could be like hot shots. It's like my way. This is what it is. This is what yeah. sells. That's what like no. our label's pushing. And it's like, that's not your thing. But I, so I think it's awesome. A, that you got the sound. B, you know, if you were still working the other gig full time, you might, you know, even if you got the, had the time to get the album together, you might not have been able to wrangle that much control. That's awesome. No, not at all. I was in the, like, in the studio just like every day with them and they were so talented. And also it's, it's great to be able to work with people, especially like, you know, like a, an older man to be able to take direction from like a younger woman too is really, um, you know, that doesn't always happen. And uh, just like how respectful and everybody was. And, you know, it was just at the end of the day about having like a really good sound. And uh, that's great. Yeah. And in that story, I think for the listeners, you know, I mentioned how the, the work ethic and all the the DIY, like how you just handle your shit in such an impressive way. Listeners, think about all of the job roles and tasks and instruments that Laura has mentioned she played to make this thing happen. And, you know, just don't expect an easy street, you know? Um, no. Oh my God. I took, I spent so long, I spent, um, I took so many lessons. I took like upright bass lessons. I took guitar lessons. I took vocal lessons. I studied Italian opera so I could really get some control over those high notes and power behind that. Um, no, I took um, like violin lessons, like the songs that I wrote. I had orchestrated this one song that had a nine part string section in it. Um, but that's coming out on the next record. Um, but, you know, I'd still, you know, had just like prepared all. It was so, it's so much work. And then also the work into just for me to learn how to, on the scratch tracks, I played every instrument on it. Even though I don't know how to play drums, I would just be like, this is where the kick goes. Like, put kick, mm-hmm. kick, you know, and then be like, this is where a snare goes. And it was enough to just kind of give a wireframe of what I thought it should sound like to somebody who is like professional, who can then take that direction and just made this like beautiful record out of it. Awesome. Well, hey, in, in addition to the website, where else can people find info? Do you have any socials you want to send people towards? Um, yeah, you can find us on Instagram. It's Screamin' Rebel Angels. Uh, Twitter at Screamin' NYC. Um, 
Bandcamp. Bandcamp is awesome. We're screaming rebel angels on Bandcamp. Um, what else do we have? Oh, YouTube. Please subscribe to us on YouTube and Spotify. So YouTube, you can't monetize that until you have a thousand followers. And we are very far away from that. Despite my wonderful, um, you know, did I just like go away on the screen? Sorry. No, you're there. (laughs) So despite my wonderful editing, we only have like 300 and some like subscribers. So subscribe. I'd have to look. I feel like Ben has friends that have that are nine years to 12 years old that have more followers on YouTube than I do. It's all right. I try not to get like hung up on metrics or anything. Um, Oh, I just started a record label too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So let's actually bring that up really quick before we go. Um, So uh, the record label is called Halo Records, um, spelled H-E-Y-L-O, but it's just H-E-Y-L-O-Records.com. Um, basically, what I, what I want to do for this, um, uh, the record label, like I'm officially the record, our record's going to be the first one on it. Um, but I'm going to be taking on a few other songs and like artists, and it's not going to be about like putting together like a whole record or anything in like the real sense of it of a traditional sense, because that just doesn't exist anymore. What I want to do is I, I just play around the world with so many talented people that maybe they don't have a full-time band that plays like 300 shows, you know, a year, or maybe they're not like super famous on like whatever. And there, there's like this middle ground of these super talented, like songwriters and musicians that are happening. And maybe they don't have a full, full record or, um, they're, they're not playing in the festivals, but I want to just take those songs and release those songs out there. Cause I feel like, you know, and have, I'm going to have a really low, um, financial investment and, um, expectations out of it. So this way that we can define success in there by just making like amazing songs that need to be out there that are, that aren't concerned about like, you know, how much money they're going to make, but it's going to be like a real piece of art. And what I'm going to, what I want for the record label to do is to just have kind of um, an integrity and longevity um, to it. That's just based on consistently just finding these songs or these people and just putting out a few of them and just have it be maybe a stepping stone for them or something. Um, And then just, you know, I still have to figure out um, the financials behind it because I'm, as much as I'd love to put vinyl out on everything, um, I'll figure out just different ways. I think that would be the best, that the people that want to hear would be able to either get those CDs or if it's just digital or if it's vinyl. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. And, and I think it's important for people like you to do that. And it, I, it's- I think I have all this knowledge of how to make this happen and just doing it independently. And if I can find like other musicians that I think, you know, would they would be good people and also hard workers. Like I have no problem, like kind of sharing what I know with them and kind yeah. of helping them and then just creating good music because there's not enough of it. And that's the weird thing, you know, it's like a, I, I still marvel sometimes when you come across, I think it's, it's almost like curating and archiving at the same time in a way where like I still, you still can come across like a, a, a random punk rock or hardcore song that is 25 years old that you've never heard before. And you're like, this was fucking kids making something amazing. Yeah. Right. And the fact that it's just out there or finding a movie that's been around or yeah. a new movie that like just has like no main distribution. Yeah. I know that the directors really um, become something now. But Jeremy, Jeremy Saulnier has this film Blue Ruin. I think it's the second film. And I randomly came across it on 
Netflix. And I mean, it's a dark, slow, brooding, depressing film. I love it. But it is exactly <laughs> the type of thing that inspires the shit out of me as a filmmaker. And I'm like, if it wasn't for this, I might not have seen it, you know? Yeah. He's got a, he's the guy who did, I don't know if you saw that, that movie Green Room. It's um, one of, uh, oh my gosh, I feel horrible that I'm forgetting his name because I'm a big fan. The guy who uh, died accidentally, he was hit by his own car and from Star Trek. Um, oh the name's going to come to me late. Um, but he plays like, uh, they're basically in a touring broke punk rock band. They get, a show gets canceled and they get booked at this show up in the woods that turns out it's at a white supremacist oh, thing. yeah. Yes, and, um, I think I just like watched half of it. Yeah, I mean, it <laughs> I was gets, like, oh, this is hitting too close to home. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, you might want to just like that whole gate versus ET thing. You might want to yeah. watch out where the second part of that goes. Um, but he's so he's come up with that. So like, I think that was his third film, and that's got a man. I feel horrible that I'm forgetting this guy's name because um, he is awesome. I'm gonna look it up really quick yeah. because I feel horrible about it. Um, but yeah, there's so many. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, having, creating music without an expectation of success and the way that we're putting it out there, um, I think you're, we're just going to, like, make better art with it and just be like, you know, I just want, like, one song. We'll just do, like, one, the one song that you have that you want people to listen to, the one song that's been, like, haunting you in your head, I'll help you. <laughs> like, I'll, we'll get it out. It's so funny how you could find too, like one of the things, there's been certain bands that I just, for whatever reason, wasn't, never got super into. Uh, Anton Yelchin, everybody. Anton Yelchin was the name of the, of the actor. Um, I, like some, randomly, somehow his car, the emergency brake was off and it, it, and it rolled back into him and pinned him. Um, Horrible. Amazing actor. Uh, amazing actor. Anyway, um, like even Motorhead, right? Like Motorhead's like a classic staple band. For whatever reason, I didn't have older brothers. My friends weren't super into Motorhead. I've always known of them, but like I got into Motorhead late, you know? And fucking sadly, you know, I mean, I got to see them play. I, I, I missed, unfortunately, most of their set opening for Maiden once. Uh-huh. I just think like music and movies are those things like art, but um, like, 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 like I guess any museum type of art, but uh, I find music and movies to be more accessible uh, I, I just think it's it's great that things get made, even when they're bad. If there's yeah. like heart behind them, like I think yeah. it's important yeah. that 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 stuff happens and that you can help people do it. You know, I remember back in the '90s when Henry Rollins was blowing up, and Henry's like definitely like one of my top Patronuses in the world. You know, he would get called a sellout for doing like Gap ads and and MacBook ads, but then he would be like, "Yeah," and then I go turn that in out like books and you know, records for other people that would never have an opportunity. And I think that's like a lost thing that people don't realize. Like, you know, even though we can sort of make things much easier now in a way more than ever, it's, it's also getting them out there and people just don't know the processes. So I think that's awesome. I'm going to try. Let's see what happens. Congrats on all of it. I mean, it's really cool. And it's it's cool. I feel like you already had the band. I didn't realize. I thought the band was around a little longer. So you were in the band about a year by the time I met Kim. We, we met in like June of 2012. Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, it was pretty pretty right there. So to see how far that's come in that time is amazing. Yeah, this is my first real band, too. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, hey, so at the end of every show, the guest tells the listeners to die mighty. Can you tell them to die mighty? 
This is Laura Palmer. I'm here to tell you to die, mighty. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for coming on. It was awesome talking to you. Thank, thank you for classing up the intro and outro <laughs> to the Coach Fury podcast. Sprinkling <laughs> um, in that class. <laughs> yeah, bringing the class. I mean, aside from that, that's probably, I would con- probably consider that a career low point for you as being <laughs> the announcer for <laughs> No, um, I what I do every day. <laughs> hey, uh, when you did the announcing, um, were you upset when I said, why are you wearing black pants when you recorded? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, folks, check out the album. And if you are in the neighborhood, let's plan like a group party. Um, you know, I know I have a heavy international listening to my Australian buddies. Hey, Jamie uh, and TC. But um, let's, uh, let's try to get some folks out and, and, and go see the show. Mercury Lounge, I haven't been there in a while, but I've seen some great shows there. It's a cool yeah. venue. Yeah, let's rock and roll and die right. mighty. And die mighty. And all the links will be in the show details. Check that stuff out. Thanks, everybody. podcast is created, owned, and produced by Steve Coach Fury Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by The FTW. Visit the FTW.nyc for band, tour, music, and merch info. Artwork created by Glenn Gurrieta. Visit glengurrieta.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-U-R-I-E-T-A. Or follow him on Instagram at Glenn Gurrieta. Voice over by Laura Palmer.